How many steps on water must he take? And how many jugs of wine did he need to make? And how many stories of heaven must he tell? And how many women must he meet at the well? I fell down in need of prayer Lord, how many crosses can you bear? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. My Lord and my God, I firmly believe that you are here, that you see me and that you hear me. I adore you with profound reverence. I ask your pardon for my sins for the grace to make this time of prayer fruitful. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. Lord Jesus, we come into your presence to pray on this second Sunday of Easter, which is the Feast of the Divine Mercy, Divine Mercy Sunday. And our Lord revealed to as Saint Faustina, that this that this feast is a special occasion on which he shares his mercy with us, on which he pours out his mercy into our souls. My daughter, tell the whole world about my inconceivable mercy. I desire that the feast of mercy should be a refuge and shelter for all souls, and especially for poor sinners. I pour out a whole ocean of grace upon those souls who approach the fount of my mercy. From St. Faustina's Diary of Divine Mercy in My Soul. And here's another passage. I want to grant a complete pardon to the souls that will go to confession and receive Holy Communion on the Feast of My Mercy. Lord, we can put ourselves in the scene that the Church proposes to us today for for our consideration at Mass. And it's a scene in which we travel back to one week ago. One week ago we celebrated Easter Sunday and we contemplate that first day on which Jesus rose from the dead, came back with this glorious body, came back with this new mode of existence. And today's Gospel tells us about the appearance of Jesus to the Apostles on the night of that first Easter Sunday. On the evening of that day, St. John recounts in his gospel, and John was an eyewitness to this scene. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I send you. An incredible moment. If we put ourselves into the apostles' shoes, we could try to imagine what they're feeling in in these moments before they knew that our Lord was resurrected, before they saw him resurrected. John says one thing. He says they're feeling fear. 
they're fearful of being next on the target on the target list of those leaders who arrested and killed our Lord. It doesn't take too much imagination for us to to realize that they're also probably feeling sad, sorrowful. At this point, they don't believe that Jesus is resurrected. Jesus upbraids them in the Gospel of Luke in the same scene. The only thing that Jesus is upset with them for is not believing the woman who told them that that they had seen Jesus resurrected. And so that means at this point, before Jesus shows up, all of them except St. John, who saw and believed, as we saw last week when he entered the, entered the empty tomb, all of them except St. John most likely think that Jesus is dead still and will remain dead because they didn't believe the woman when they, when they said that Jesus had risen from the dead. So not only are they fearful, they're also sorrowful because they've lost, they've lost the love of their life. They've lost their best friend. They've lost their teacher. They've lost their master. And therefore the future looks bleak. They all had this future in mind, which included following Jesus, being with Jesus, and now they think it's 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 all gone. It also doesn't take too much imagination to to realize that that they must have been feeling guilty at this point. They must have had a great sense of shame. Why? Because all of them told Jesus that they would never leave him. Peter says it very explicitly, and the Bible says, and all the disciples said the same thing. And even if I have to die, I, I will not deny you. And then what happens? They all, they all run away from him when he's arrested. Only John comes back with Our Lady to the foot of the cross. So they must have felt, they must have felt the sense of shame that they had, that they had betrayed our Lord, that they weren't faithful to His love, that they weren't there when He most needed them, when He was dying. And they felt ashamed and guilty at their lack of fidelity, at their lack of follow-through with those desires to be with him, to never leave him. And into this situation, the situation of fear, of sorrow, and of guilt, of shame, walks Jesus, walks the resurrected Lord. And what's his message? His message is peace. Peace, don't be troubled. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Their sorrow has turned into joy. Their lack of peace, their shame, their fear, which is a lack of peace, is turned into peace and their sorrow is turned into joy. Jesus' message to this situation is a message of peace and joy, a peace and joy that he gives and he and he brings and he brings about. And Lord Jesus, isn't this an image of sin? Doesn't sin precisely make us afraid and fearful? Afraid of God in the wrong way. The first thing that the devil does to try to get Eve to sin is to sow doubt in her heart that God wants her good, that God really cares for her, that the rules of God are actually good for her. He says, you will not die, or you won't, you won't die if you eat that fruit. You'll become better. You'll become like God. 
And God doesn't want that. He's trying to keep you down. He's trying to keep you subject. Not for your good, but but for his. He he, he doesn't want anyone to share in his power and his authority. You won't die. And so the devil sows this distrust, this this bad fear of God. And sin makes it worse. Sin exacerbates it. They hide from God once they sin because they fear God's punishment. And they don't realize that the punishment of sin is actually something we do to ourselves more than anything that God does to us. We hurt ourselves with our turning away from him, from turning away from what's truly right. So sin is linked with fear, fear of God, fear of eternal punishment, fear deep down of what we're doing to ourselves, of what we're going to be missing if we keep sinning. And sin is also sorrowful. Lord, as the apostles were sorrowful because they had lost you, so too sin makes our soul sorrowful in a in a deep and bitter way because it's a, it's a loss of our greatest good. It's a turning away from what truly makes us peaceful and joyful and happy to some sort of false substitute. And the soul eventually knows it and is, and is very sad, despondent over the fact that it's lost its true love, that it's lost its true good, its treasure in God. And sin, of course, makes us feel ashamed. It makes us feel guilty. We realize that we're, that we're better than this and that we're hurting people and we're jipping ourselves and that we're letting God down. And that naturally and, and properly makes us feel ashamed. It makes us feel guilty. And just as Jesus walks into that room, into that situation of fear and sorrow and guilt, and has this message of mercy, peace be with you. Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, so I send you. So Jesus, with his mercy, especially in the sacrament of mercy, confession, walks into the room of our soul, where he finds us, fearful and sorrowful and guilty. And he walks in with the same message, peace be with you. And I haven't given up on you. The apostles must have been been surprised and relieved and excited that our Lord hadn't given up on them. He doesn't just forgive them and say, okay, I'm not going to punish you guys or send you to hell for for, for your sins, for what you've done, how you left me there. He doesn't just forgive them and not hurt them. He reaffirms their vocation as apostles. He doesn't come in and say, you're all fired. All right, I'm going to get 11 new apostles because you guys clearly don't cut it. No, rather, he, he forgives them and he says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. I still have confidence in you. You can still do great things. Nothing is lost. Your sinfulness is now part of my plan. It, It will make you more humble and you'll depend on me more and you'll be more careful and we'll do great things together now. As the Father has sent me, so also I send you. And Jesus walks into our souls and does the same thing. Peace be with you. The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord and our souls were glad when we received God's forgiveness. A great source of joy and consolation to know that no matter what I've done, no matter 
how bad I've been. I can hear those words of the priest, which he speaks on behalf of God. And I absolve you from your sins in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. God's mercy, God's love for us on the cross, pinpointed to my soul at that particular moment, aimed right at my soul, hitting it, hitting it where it needs to be hit. I absolve you from your sins, the things you've done wrong, the ways you've, you've failed to be who I made you to be. I forgive you for that. I absolve you from your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Lord, you don't give up on me. Lord, in spite of my many sins, my grave sins, and my venial sins, whatever kind of sins I have, you don't give up on me, Lord. You come back and you say, peace. And you say, as the Father has sent me, so I send you, having confidence that I, I can get up and, and keep being good and keep working and keep helping people and keep spreading the gospel. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Our Lord doesn't just say peace. He doesn't just wish peace to those apostles and to us. Lord, you go further. You give us a means to return to peace. You say, peace be with you, and then you give them the power to forgive sins. You give them the power of sacramental absolution in confession. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. Receive the Holy Spirit. Breathes on them the, the spirit of mercy, the spirit of forgiveness, the Holy Spirit, the spirit of love. It's a good question, Lord. Do I avail myself of the sacrament of confession enough? Do I stick to the bare minimum of once a year as the church requires? Or do I realize, no, this is something that, that God wants me to appreciate and, and use more frequently because it's so good for my soul. St. Josemaria used to liken it to taking a, a bath or a shower. Right? He would say, you know, I don't take a shower once a week. I take a shower every day. So too with confession, we shouldn't take a shower for our soul and clean our soul once a year, but perhaps once a month or perhaps once a week. Certainly whenever we, whenever we realize that we need it because we've offended God in some grave way or some particularly deliberate way. We should go to confession. We shouldn't wait around staying in a state of a state of mortal sin or possibly in the state of mortal sin or we get back we get back to God's to God's grace to God's good favor we return to him quickly and happily to receive his 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 mercy from fear guilt and sorrow to peace and joy the transition Jesus brings on this divine mercy sunday the transition he brought to that upper room. The transition, Lord, you bring to my soul every time I receive your mercy in confession. 
one of the things about divine mercy that it's very helpful for us to consider in our prayer is its connection to other divine attributes. God's mercy is eternal, just like God is eternal. God's mercy is all-powerful, just like God himself is all-powerful. God's mercy is omnipresent. It's everywhere. It reaches especially all our sins, all situations of sin and suffering, because God himself is all-present. God's mercy is an attribute of God, and so therefore it shares in all of the attributes of the divine nature. It's infinite, it's eternal, it's everywhere, it's all-knowing. Psalm 136 hammers away at this point. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the God of gods, for his mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his mercy endures forever. Who alone does great wonders, for his mercy endures forever. Who by understanding made the heavens, for his mercy endures forever. Who spread out the earth and the waters, for his mercy endures forever. Who made the great lights, for his mercy endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for his mercy endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night, for his mercy endures forever. Who struck Egypt through their firstborn, for his mercy endures forever. And brought Israel out from among them, for his mercy endures forever. It is he who remembered us in our lowest state, for his mercy endures forever. And rescued us from our foes, for his mercy endures forever. Who gives food to all flesh, for his mercy endures forever. I'll give thanks to the God of heaven, for his mercy endures forever. What a helpful truth. What a helpful theme. His mercy endures forever. Nothing kills his mercy. Like St. Paul says, love bears all things, suffers all things. Nothing that we can do can stop God's mercy from reaching out to us, from trying to forgive us, from trying to change us and, and, and help us. St. Therese of Lisieux, who was a great saint, and one of the things she really stressed was trust in God, not to fear God, to overcome any fear of God, because she had this great conviction and this great experience of God's mercy. It is not because I have been preserved from mortal sin that I lift up my heart to God in trust and love. So here, Therese is saying, well, maybe you look at my life and, and you know, I, I'm innocent. I haven't been a big sinner. And you might think, well, um, little flower, right? It's easy for you to, not to fear God because you've never done, actually done anything super bad or super wrong. But what about us? What about us who are greater sinners than you by far? And so she reassures us that it doesn't matter. It is not because I have been preserved from mortal sin that I lift up my heart to God in trust and love. I feel that even if I had on my conscience every crime one could commit, I should lose nothing of my confidence. My heart broken with sorrow, I would throw myself into the arms of my Savior. I know that he loves the prodigal son, 
I have heard his words to St. Mary Magdalene, to the woman taken in, in adultery, and to the woman of Samaria. No one could frighten me, for I know what to believe concerning his mercy and his love, and I know that all that multitude of sins would disappear in an instant, even as a drop of water cast into a flaming furnace. Thank you, Lord, for St. Therese. Thank you for this insight. Our sins stand no chance against your mercy if we turn to you in sorrow and humility and ask you for forgiveness. Even if she sang here, she had, she had, she had committed a great multitude, right, all the sins possible, terrible sins. If she turned to you in that moment in trust and love, they would disappear in an instant, even as a drop of water cast into a flaming furnace. Our sins stand no chance against the divine mercy. It's not fair. It's not a fair fight. It's a total mismatch. For his mercy endures forever. Lord, help me to realize that nothing, nothing I can do can't be forgiven by you. No sin that I commit is too bad for you to forgive as long as I open myself to your forgiveness. Lord, what's the greatest obstacle to my receiving your divine mercy? Lord, what can stand in the way? And the thing that can, that can stand in the way, I think, of God's mercy is our pride. And this can happen in two ways. The first, it can happen in the more obvious way of pride saying to the God's mercy, I don't need you. Right? That we're so proud that we think, I don't need God's mercy. I don't need God's forgiveness. I haven't done anything that needs to be forgiven. I'm a good person. I don't need a savior. And this can happen to us. It can happen to good Catholics. You know, not... It doesn't happen to good Catholics on a kind of global level. We don't think, oh, I don't need to be saved. I've never sinned. But it might happen with <laughs> with specific areas of sin that in our pride we don't want to recognize, we don't want to work on. And so our pride comes to their defense, the defense of those other sins, because they don't want to come to the light. We don't want to admit, oh yeah, I have this bad habit. Oh yeah, I'm really bad at this. I need to change that. We don't want to admit those things. And so we take the posture of the pride that doesn't need forgiveness that doesn't need God's mercy and therefore doesn't approach it. On the other hand, there's there's a very sneaky, diabolical kind of pride which hides itself as false humility. And this is the pride that says, well, I'm so bad. I'm so broken. I'm so messed up. So many people have done so many bad things to me and I've done so many bad things on top of that that God's mercy just can't help me. I know he I know he came to save everyone and and I know that his forgiveness can help everyone. But I'm the exception to <laughs> I'm the exception to the rule. God's never met a case like mine. And so that's that's a sneaky kind of pride because it's because it's cloaked in a garb of humility. Right? Even Satan can come as an angel of light. And even our pride can be hidden as a deep humility. That this will never change. 
and this can this can happen because uh, it can happen for uh, for a couple of reasons. One, it can happen perhaps because um, the way people treated us, especially when we're younger, and therefore the way we come to think about ourselves, that we kind of see ourselves in a negative light that's way exaggerated and that isn't from God. God thinks you're wonderful. God, you're the apple of his eye, scripture says. And so then in that case, we have to, we have to find some ways of detaching ourselves from our own overly negative self-appraisal. Right? To get over that attachment or that habit of thinking of ourselves as like super bad and, and irredeemable. Because that's not true. The same situation, St. Josemaria says this somewhere, can come from a great cowardice, right? That it's it's cowardice in disguise. And what happens there is that we really, deep down, we don't want to change. We're used to our sinfulness. We're used to our bad habits. And so we shield ourselves from God's mercy by saying, I'm too bad for God to help me. His mercy can't, you know, can't improve this. And and by saying those things, we give ourselves a pass. We give ourselves permission to stay the same. Permission not to not to expend the effort of converting. Permission of staying safe in what we think is the safeness of our of our current state, the status quo of my soul with all of its warts and and weaknesses. I think we see something of this in that man who Jesus cures, who this the Bible says has been laying at the side of this pool for 38 years. And Jesus asks him, do you wish to be healed? And we might think, oh, it's a rhetorical question. Of course he wishes to be healed. St. John Chrysostom says, oh, Jesus asks it to let this man show off his humility, to manifest his humility by telling our Lord, his situation as it is. And I'm going to disagree with St. John Chrysostom here, so which probably means I'm wrong, so take this with a huge grain of salt. But if I, but if I were right, uh, it doesn't matter if I'm wrong or right. The point is that this could be us. The way I'm describing this could be us, whether it was this man or not. So John Chrysostom says, oh no, Jesus is, is asking him if he wishes to be healed so the guy can tell Jesus, um... I have no one to help me. Every time I every time I try to step down, someone cuts me off. For John Chrysostom, that's a sign of this guy's humility. He doesn't like get upset with Jesus. He just tells him the situation as it is. Personally, I'm much more cynical about this guy. Why? Well, because it's been 38 years. So he's telling Jesus that that for 38 years, someone's always cut him off. And, and, you know, apparently he's paralyzed, but he says, before I can step down, right, someone cuts me off. And that's why I'm laying here. Now, if he can step down, how paralyzed is he? And if there's people around, and he's been there 38 years, can he, like, cut a deal? Like, hey, listen, I've been here 12 years now, and um, you just showed up. How about this? You help me into the pool, right, this time, and then when I'm better, I'll help you in. <laughs> I'll help you in the next time. 
Yeah, it might take a couple months, but please, I've been here 12 years. And in the end, he's there 38 years, and he can never, like, find anyone to help him into the pool. So my hunch is that this guy was injured, found his way to the pool eventually, and then just kind of gave up. Yeah, it was too hard. His life was his life was complicated before. He didn't want to return to his responsibilities and and face his his mother-in-law or whatever. But he got used to being he got used to being crippled. He he was comfortable with the situation. And so he tells Jesus something that's you know, partially true but probably kind of partially false. So I don't have anyone to help me and Every time I try to get down, uh, someone steps in front of me. And Jesus looks at the guy and says, pick up your mat and walk. Move. Let's get going. Enough of this laying around. Pick up your mat and walk. And the guy does it. Right? He responds to Jesus' confidence in him. He sees that Jesus is cutting through his excuses he senses in Jesus a greater life that's worth the effort of getting up for. And he has the courage at that moment to let God's mercy into his soul. Lord Jesus, give each one of us the courage to let your mercy into our soul and to make the changes it needs to make to bring to light what we'd rather keep in the shadows. Mary, our mother, mother of mercy, pray for us on this Divine Mercy Sunday. Help each one of us in our own way. Approach God's mercy. Let God's mercy walk into our soul. And move us like it moved those apostles. From fear and guilt, sorrow, to peace and joy. I thank you, my God, for the good resolutions, affections, and inspirations. Which you have communicated to me in this meditation, I ask your help to put them into effect. My Immaculate Mother, St. Joseph, my Father and Lord, my Guardian Angel, intercede for me. In the rain a thing he can't repair Lord, how many crosses can you bear?